Hi, this is John Burlingame, host of Disney's Four Scores podcast. In this podcast series, we bring together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveal the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. It's a genuine thrill to welcome two old friends to the podcast today. The Emmy-winning, Oscar-nominated director of Chicago, Into the Woods, and Mary Poppins Returns, Rob Marshall, and the eight-time Oscar-winning composer of The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and so many other memorable musicals, many of them now part of the grand history of Disney music, Alan Menken. They're here today to talk about their long-awaited collaboration on the live-action version of The Little Mermaid. Welcome, Rob and Alan. Thank you, John. Thanks. Hi. Alan, before we jump into the new film, can I ask you, when you and Howard Ashman were working on the original animated version back in the late 1980s, did you have any sense that what you were doing might become a modern classic? Well, <laughs> yes and no. I say the yes only comes from the fact that we had just come off a little shop of horrors, which we sort of, we broke through with our sort of style of writing. And I felt that our collaboration was really on the cusp of something really special. So I felt that on a gut level. On a practical level, no, I just wanted to not get fired. <laughs> so everyone knows that the dramas, the personal dramas and all that accompanied that, it really was a, almost a greater, bigger focus than, than how the movie would do. But as, it, as the movie rolled out and people began to react, we realized that there was a hunger for for what this represented. I mean, it was the return of the movie musical, and that's what it was, really, for and all of us. And not just an animated musical. The no. return of the movie musical. Period. I, mean, I was doing Broadway at the time, and the whole community was so excited about this incredible piece because it was a Broadway-style movie musical, and they had been dead for so many years. And it was so exciting when that came out. We were all ran to the theater to see it in 1989. And then it ushered in that incredible era yeah. of these beautiful animated musicals. And I've always, I said this to Alan too, that I, in a way I felt it opened the door for Chicago years later because people were accepting actors and characters speaking and then breaking into song in a way. And, and I really believe it all began with The Little Mermaid. And also the, the fact that the integrity of the casting and, and bringing people with stage credits mm. into Doing this was, I think, a big factor. And I don't think people realize how much, actually, Disney animation and Disney at that time was being run by people who came out of theater. Michael Eisner was a theater major in college. Peter Schneider, who was the head of animation, had been the company manager on Little Shop. And it went on and on like that. So it you was- You could feel it though. You could feel it in the work. You could feel it in the product. It was amazing. So, Rob, can you talk about the challenge of reimagining a Disney animated classic for a new century and a new generation? What was necessary and how did you go about it? Well, I'll tell you, you know, you have the bones of a spectacular musical, so you begin with that already. I have to say, I went back to the Hans Christian Andersen tale. What was exciting to realize is that even back then, almost 200 years ago, it was a very modern story about a young girl who feels displaced and wants something different in her life. And, you know, she breaks down barriers and walls to go achieve that. And uh, it's really, in a way, about prejudice, not being afraid of the other, in this case, the human world. 
And so I found that very modern and very moving to me, period. And so, listen, when you have a song like Part of Your World, you know, Alan's amazing song and Howard's amazing song, which really is, in a way, our Somewhere Over the Rainbow. You know, it's, it's, I mean, when people refer to the I Want song, they talk about Part of Your World, and it's the motor of the piece. What do people want? And so I found, in a way, that we had this classic tale that we could tell with this song is in, in our film, in our version of the film, it's the first song. And it really begins the whole journey for her. And um, I have to say, when I was making it the whole time, it was very, I know, it felt like in the world we're living in, a more divisive world that we're living in. It felt like an antidote to that for me, personally. You know, instead of building walls and borders that you can't cross or whatever, being afraid of other people, it was really more about bridges, you know, and, uh, and a reminder that we're all one. So I found it, I found it incredible and exciting to work on because of that. Right, right there already you have that. Yeah, yeah. A song we almost lost, by the way, <laughs> in the, one of the early screenings of Mermaid, of course, people know the story that, you know, and there was an executive who said, uh, the kids are getting restless, get that number out of here, and Howard basically said, no. No. <laughs> So, Alan, clearly you were going to need some new songs for this one. And, of course, we lost Howard in 1991. How did you choose Lin-Manuel Miranda as your collaborator? It was such fate that, that Lin became my collaborator. It actually, I mean, the actual nuts and bolts of it are uh, Sean Bailey saw an interview that Lin gave about, and he talked about how much he loved Little Mermaid, not realizing that I I would always be hearing about this little boy named Lynn Manuel Miranda and also another little boy named Bobby Lopez. Both went to the Hunter School in New York. Both were obsessed with what Howard and I were doing and very talented. And just fast forward the years and there's Lynn Manuel Miranda. I go, is that the same? How many Lynn Manuel Miranda's could there be? And in the Heights in Hamilton. And so it was there was a no-brainer in terms of that. Stylistically. It's a marriage. You go, well, what's this going to sound like? Alan Menken and Lynn Manuel Miranda together. And we both, I think, you know, both had a little bit of uh, jitters about how, what's this going to be? How, you know, can I live up to what Lynn is doing? And Lynn, can I live up to what Howard was doing and all that? So it was very, it felt very inevitable. And it was really fun. It was incredibly organic to watch and be part of. I mean, we're all from the theater. So there's a way, we all speak a very similar language, which is incredibly helpful. But I have to say that, you know, we sat down with John DeLuca, David McGee, Alan and Lynn. I think we should make sure that our listeners understand that John DeLuca is your producing partner. Yes, exactly. And David McGee is your screenwriter. Exactly. Thank you, Jeff. We were targeting where we needed new material. I mean, and Alan is honestly, I'll just say this right now, I mean, the greatest collaborator ever. I just love every second working with him and so open and so ready to reimagine this. And we realized that the character of Eric needed something, needed a song and something to bring his story to life. And so they wrote this amazing piece called Wild Uncharted Waters, which really helps us see what his journey is. You know, they really are kindred spirits. They both feel misunderstood in a way and they, and they are adventurous and they're not afraid of the other. And they find each other because they have a similar trajectory. And Alan and Lynn wrote this incredible piece. And you know, it's interesting when you look at the animated film, which is shorter, obviously, 
Um, you know, Ariel has one song really, and a series of reprises, and so we all felt, can we give Ariel another song? And we all determined that uh, this wonderful song that Alan wrote called For the First Time really is about Ariel's first time on land. It was tricky because she, at that point she's lost her voice. Right. right. So we found a way to do it in a sort of very exciting way. And it's a classic example of how you take a song that can really almost work as a montage and really tell a lot of story inside this one song, which it does. Mm -hmm. But that was the great thing about working with Alan and Lynn. You know, the egos are checked at the door. Everybody's just working to find this. And then they wrote this great, great song called Scuttle, <gasps> The Scuttlebutt for well, Scuttle. Well, I wanted to hilarious. ask Sorry, too. sorry, I'm jumping no, in. No, fine, it's but it, but it, But it was, it was just thrilling. Actually, John DeLuca came up with the title. He said, what about Scuttle? Because it was about taking a scene that exists and turning it into a song, which we know is the best it way to do so it. It was so much fun. Right? I gave Lynn a very lilting, a very Disney kind of piece of music. And he actually did sort of almost like a rap over it. But using all the form of it and the harmony, it just, I just, it, it, I was dumbfounded when I listened to it. It just, this is incredible. It's so fun. It's such a, you, of course, remember it. I mean, it's this bright light and it's just, and, and a, a wonderful showcase for Aquafina, who's so yes. fantastic oh, in our film. And, and David. And David, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I told you so. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We gotta go before the sun go down. What? Gotta get ready for the big showdown. Right. Go ahead and get ready for the And get ready for the wedding. Set the setting so we can't slow down. Let's go, so let's take a second and talk about casting, because when you were casting this, I always wonder how big a factor is the actor's ability to sing? You know, clearly you hit the jackpot with Halle Bailey as your new Ariel. But you just mentioned David Diggs as Sebastian and Aquafina as Cuddle. Mm. And Eric is played by Jonah Howard King. Yes. So talk about the casting. Well, it really, you know, here's the thing. I love working with actors who are new to musicals. A lot of the time I've done that in my career, and because they approach it from the right place. With Ariel, I saw her on the Grammys. I have to be honest. I saw her on the Grammys, and I thought, who is this little angel with this beautiful voice? You know, the thing about Ariel is you're, asked, you're asking for a lot. You're asking for her to be so many things, passionate, strong, joyous, you know, adventurous, but also vulnerable, somewhat uh, otherworldly, which, you know, and then have this glorious voice. I mean, the whole story's built around her voice, that voice. And so so you have to find all of it. You have to find all of it. And she came in and, and sang Part of Your World for us, and I just started to cry. I thought it was so... She is amazing. ...connected to, to her emotions so deep. And um, so then we, it was really, but can she act? You know, can she, can she do that? And she has such a natural sense of, about camera. She has a natural sense of bringing truth to what she does. The crazy thing is that she was the first actor we saw for the role. Wow. And then we saw everybody else. <laughs> and what's interesting is we saw every ethnicity. We had no agenda. We were just looking for the greatest person to play the role. And she set the bar and no one surpassed that ever. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't mentioned Melissa McCarthy. Oh my goodness. Which I think is, is is another sort of genius casting moment. You want to talk about that? Yeah, she's well, yeah. I had only seen Melissa McCarthy do a some sort of a, a appearance on Tonight Show where she was doing Colors of the Wind as a joke. Oh really? It's I think she was lip syncing to it and they were like, you know, she had like leaves blowing in her face and it was a riot. <laughs> so I had no idea if she actually could sing. And then oh my lord. Yeah. 
Oh my God, she's incredible. She kind of knocks it out of the park. She knocks it way out of the park. Yeah, I mean, the great thing is she was, she's fearless and she really wanted to do this. I heard her do that Streisand duet album and she did something with Streisand. And I thought, oh wow, there's a voice there. But I also knew that because she's an actor, she's gonna approach it from the right place and really just find her way. You know, she's singing as Ursula and that's what's so great. She worked so hard uh, to get there and it was thrilling to see that being born, you know, because it comes from, uh, as I said, sort of the absolute right place from character. I mean, across the boards, Jonah Howard King. Oh, Jonah was, you know, we saw so many actors for that role, so many, and then we actually screen tested three of them with Hallie to get a sense of who had the chemistry with her. He's an actor who's new to singing too. But once again, he just has so much talent, you know? So good. He's so good. He, you know, they wrote this beautiful new song for him. He does it with such feeling and such, I don't know, passion in his voice. It's really quite beautiful. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. You talked a little bit about Aquafina, who I think was another oh, really God, genius, yes. genius casting <laughs> moment. She's, she's so funny. But she sings, too. It's a long way from Buddy Hackett, right? It's <laughs> a long but, way from Buddy. <laughs> but Aquafita, it was so fun to like come up with the idea of, of working with a woman in that role. But she's just such a unique character, you know, herself. We had everyone there for rehearsal because we had to, even though they were voices. Javier Bardem has a relationship with Sebastian, David, played by David Diggs, or... You know, they all interact with each other. Hallie interacts with all of them. So we needed to have them in rehearsal. And we created these characters and, and story with them so that they would be able to relate even though they were just voices. And, and it shows, I think. They, were, they play real scenes. And well, Sebastian alone is, is a really interesting character that it's a has a huge character. It right? has a lot to do, yeah. you know, and, and has yeah. relationships all over the place. Yes. Here. What about David? He came in and it was just, it was his. I mean, what, what you pray as a director for me, I just pray I don't have to even make a choice. <laughs> that I could just sit there, someone comes in and claims the role, and I, don't, I just go, well, that's it. it was, he's so creative. He's really a genius, and he's so quick and funny, and, you know, in a way also new to singing fully because he was nervous about the singing and holding notes and things like that, but he sounds incredible, and he just is original, and he brought that originality to life. I also love what Rob did in the in the relationship between those three ancillary characters, you know, Sebastian, Scuttle, and Flounder. They're so invaluable to how the picture actually lands because of both the emotion and the humor they bring in at just the right moments. It's it's amazing. Now that speaks to the whole idea of structuring this going in. And I wonder how much because this is half of this is underwater. And has there ever been an underwater musical? No, I, I don't think. I mean, so. there, you know, Esther Williams musicals, obviously, and that's but, true. But we know, but they were holding their breath, and no one was singing or speaking underwater. You know, but you know, but she's swimming with Tom and Jerry. There were sequences like that, but not a musical where you're singing and speaking and playing scenes. No. Yeah, so that makes me think about the whole idea of structuring this and how much advance work you had to do. Once you had cast it, and maybe once you wrote the songs, mm -hmm. before you even got to the set, it was it was the most prep I've ever done on a film. We prepped for over a year, because how do you do it? That's the question. You know, how do you go about doing it? And what happened was, we started with storyboards, and then we moved to something called pre-visualization, which is almost like a little mini movie, because we had to be able to create what our actors were going to be doing and what the camera was going to be doing, and then 
we had to communicate that to the camera team and to the stunt team. I mean, every, I mean, no, listen, no one was on the ground. You know, everybody was flying around. And each, uh, you know, they were on these crazy rigs and apparatus, these things called tuning forks with a big disc around them so they could spin in these crane arms. And every actor had maybe eight or 10 stunt people moving them around. I mean, it was the most complicated thing we've ever done. Every, from the very first time I heard about Rob as a director of something outside of stage, it was always about his prep. This, he's on a level of his own in terms of just being prepared and caring about each moment. It's, a, it's amazing to watch that. I have to believe that that's also part of your theatrical training. Coming from the theater, I think makes all the difference. At that and, and fear. <laughs> because you go, well, how are we going to do this? I can't show up and pretend I don't know. But it, it really was about making sure we knew how to do this. And then we had rehearsal, a lot of rehearsal. We were actually one week away from filming when COVID hit. So then when we came back after that, seven months later, we actually prepped again. Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like. So how deeply were you involved, Alan, during this whole process? It was so great to have him there. I just wanted to be a support, to be honest. And I, I, I straddled, I have two roles in these movies. One is to be the keeper of the flame, which, you know, was like, this is our original intention. With Rob, it's not very challenging to have to do that because he's already that. And that is also to be a member of a new team. That role was just being as supportive as possible. I've learned to leave room for other people. There's no form that's more collaborative than a musical. Right. Everybody adds something. But you have to be an open artist like Alan is. You know, he, he lets that all in. He knows that's how it works. That's how it fires on all engines, is when everybody's there working together. And we know when that doesn't happen, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's it falls like apart. being selfless is actually being selfish. 100%. <laughs> because selfless works. Alan's selfish right. doesn't work. Yeah. yeah, it's true. So you were talking a little bit about working with Lynn and the special experience uh, of the Scuttlebutt song. Talk about working with Lynn generally on all of the songs. Were you guys in the same room yes, together? Yes, we, we got into the same room and came to my studio. And Wild Uncharted Waters was the one where he felt he was really in Howard's footsteps and going, am I going to be okay doing this? Scuttlebutt, I was definitely in Linland. Sure. <laughs> and for the first time really is the amalgam. Huh. Uh, but I love about for the first time also is that she's discovering, she's discovering, and she's so excited. And then when he comes and she meets him, she discovers a sense of almost heartbreak because... He, he thinks she's not the girl. It's a beautiful turn. You know, it's a beautiful turn. To, like, everything's so, you know, kind of interesting and wonderful. And the energy of that song for the first time. And then then when it flips, of course, is at the end. When the, then it becomes slow and contemplative when, she, for the first time, she's feeling a great deal of sadness. I had the experience of, like, giving Lynn a piece of music. And then Lynn has to multitasks a bit, you think? Um, <laughs> Just a little. And, and I get a recording from, from his phone. He's in the bathroom of the of the Acela Express <laughs> on his way no. to or from Washington singing, singing, you know, look at the sky and the sand and the sun and the sea. Be but he's in the bathroom. You hear the <laughs> And Lynn's voice. 
I, I'm saved, I've saved these, so someday they'll be very valuable. That's fantastic. We'll put them on the CD. Um, and Lynn is very smart. Very, very smart. And there are, you know, times where he reacts to something, you know, because he, he's a free spirit, and he's just, you know, it, it, it all seems to pour out of him, and the theatrical smarts are, are pretty substantial. Well, you Did part of your world need any additional lyrics or any new work at all? No, we had we had one reprise that we added. Oh, yeah. okay. Because we had introduced this idea that we can actually hear her thoughts in song. So we thought we could try that in the moment, her lowest moment in, in the story. And they wrote this beautiful reprise of Part of Your World, which is which is so unexpected because it actually is, is not even the sort of, it's kind of like almost the bridge yeah. that you used. And it was so beautiful. So that was wonderful to have. Yeah. And, you know, and things like in the animated movie, the big finale, Disney choir, wasn't really appropriate for this. Because so, you, 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 know, you want to be sensitive to the form. Well, Alan wrote the score as well, you see. So, so what's great is that we were able to take this beautiful musical, but give it sort of the epic space it needed for, I mean, the score is stunning and really sophisticated and elegant. And because there's some massive sequences with beautiful score. I kind of enjoy seeing the end credits because you get to hear a lot of the score actually alone. Yeah, 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 yeah. What did I give to live where you are? Where do I go with nowhere to turn to? So then you're responsible for the dramatic score here as well. The underscore, yeah. Because of, well, I know you did that in the 89 version. Yeah, I do that. I try to do that with all the films I work on because they're musicals. My first experience with having a musical on film was Little Shop of Horrors, right. where I said, I don't need to write the score. You know, I have the songs. And then, may he rest in peace, Miles Goodman yes. got nominated for Best Score at Little Shop of Horrors for like eight minutes of, of <laughs> interstitial music. And Howard said, you should write the scores. <laughs> Um, and I love writing the scores. But and also, we're working from Alan's themes. So that's the thing. The score pulls together all those songs. So Ariel's Part of Your World, that's her theme. Yeah. So you hear her theme played in so many different ways throughout. Or Eric, with this new song, Wild Uncharted Waters, thematically, we hear that played throughout. And so it all comes from Alan's work anyway. So, it, you know. Yeah, you have to use those threads. But he has a natural sensibility about that kind of thing anyway. So it was wonderful. What's interesting, Little Mermaid Animated was my first film score. And if you listen to it, it's a very naive score. Uh, you it, think so? Oh, it is. It's very simple. <laughs> but that's what—that's why people love it. Yeah. I didn't know when you have a, you know, when you have the storm at sea and writing all these notes, and later I went back and I went, oh my god, what was I thinking? But then people say, no, we love that. So there was a sense of naivete about it that actually ended up becoming those elements that you can't get rid of. This is a much more live action kind of underscore, but incorporating those themes. Mm -hmm. So this was a, is a real challenge for me, to be honest. And there's probably an hour's worth of score. I At guess. least, if not a lot. It's yeah. a lot. I had some great orchestrators, great people I was working with that were amazingly helpful. So I'm never quite clear when you guys go into the recording studio and record all the songs. Clearly, it has to be before shooting. And were you there? Were you part yeah. of it? Did you rehearse the uh, the actors? How did all that go? This is not me personally. The, having the composer in the room can be threatening to some actors. <laughs> so I, I try to keep a distance on those things. 
And in general, I don't conduct my scores. I like to be, again, in, in the control room. I like to use my team to really help coordinate that. And I want to step back because if you can get too much of the weeds as a musician, mm. if you're just simply thinking about the music without somebody going, wait a sec, that's, I need something else there. It's very helpful to have that perspective and step back and see it. And that's what Alan did, you know, because when he would come in and say something, it was profound for these actors. You know, they would hear something like, oh, right, you know, those kind of important milestones in the pieces. Yeah. Really important you, to hear. You, you want to speak when it's really going to have an effect and don't overdo it. And, but also, you're also so joyous. And you bring, and that's what I love. You inspire the, the actors because they're so excited because you're so wonderful to work with. Early in my career, I used to put my foot in my mouth a lot. <laughs> I remember we were recording a Pocahontas and Judy Kuhn was singing just around the river. Yes. And I just, I think I just, because of level, I just pressed the button. I said, Judy, now, was that your performance? And Judy said, well, I guess not. <laughs> and I went, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, I've learned you guys press the button and let me sit back. Yeah. Because I am very in the moment. And actors, are, there's a vulnerability that totally. you don't want oh, yeah. to totally. abuse at yeah, all. Absolutely. Rob, I have to ask you, do you also record them while they're on the set, while you're shooting, do you record them singing the songs again? And do you ever use that? That's a really great question. And the answer is yes. We record them live because sometimes you'll get in that moment, you'll get something really, really special. So, you know, you'll do a few where you are singing to play back. And then once they're comfortable, you know, you, you do it that way. And then, and then you mix and match. I mean, here's the goal. The goal is that it all sounds live. Yeah. That's the goal. And so even when they are singing to the track, they have to sing. They actually have to sing with themselves. You know, you can't just lip sync or whatever. It has to be sung. You have to feel the breath. It has to feel immediate. I want people to believe when they're watching it, they are singing it live. And some of it is and some of it isn't. I never want to say where, but it's better just to think it all is. That's really the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, did you get to visit the sets at all? Actually, no, because it was COVID. It was COVID. I was planning to go to Sardinia. We were all looking forward to it. And then... Which is where they shot the, the Prince's Castle and all that. Yeah, that's all our exteriors were in Sardinia, yeah. which was a, f a fantastic place to be. But it was, you know, the, it was just, it was tricky because we our sets were so closed. I mean, it, we had the like the least amount of people you could possibly have. There was social distancing. Remember that term? <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy with a stick six feet wide, and he's like, "Get you know." Hmm. Well, also, and recording music with social distancing was a, a nightmare too, because you're 12 feet apart. Oh boy! And so you can't you can't do a full orchestra. You have to do it all in separately. Separately. Yeah. <laughs> so the strings are one day, and the brass is another. Exactly. That kind of thing. It was so hard because you can't hear the orchestration fully until you have it all together. It's really so. We had but incredible mock-ups. I will say. Yes, we did. Huge amount of effort put into the mock-ups, making sure that this is the blueprint 100%. that we're going to be using. Mm, okay. I don't want to spend too much time talking about special effects, but. All of the underwater work is at least partially CGI. Well, here's the thing. And the only way to do this, we realized, of course, is that there can't be any water. So we were in a blue screen stage and everything's added. So your backgrounds, your water, your vegetation, all of that fish, everything, all of that was added, but also every strand of hair. I know. And also costumes. 
So some people had pieces, like Javier had his armor, but obviously his tail. But Halley was just a, kind of like a shorts and a little tracksuit top. I mean, it's ethereal and otherworldly, too. So, I mean, thank God we had the rehearsal we had, so we understood what we were playing. And we were only working with props and things that we handled and dealt with. We had a lot of illustrations from John Meyer, our production designer, and Colleen Atwood, so everyone knew what they were going to look like, what it was going to be, what the environment was going to be. But when we were filming, it was there was nothing there. Mm. Now, we should say that Colleen was your costume designer. Costume designer, thank yeah. you. She's so great. One of the things I loved about the movie was the fact that it's a it's almost a bigger, more universal story now. One that gently reminds us about acceptance and the need to discover and celebrate other cultures, other peoples. Can you talk about why this part of the story was important to you? Thank you, John, for saying that. And that was the goal. I mean, you know, I think when you have a piece like this, I see it as an epic, classic, timeless piece. And it's a live action movie. So you have to bring real emotion, real truth to it in a different way. It's just a different kind of genre. And I really thought, you know, yes, there's so much to this piece, but underneath there's this very emotional story being told about, in a way, sort of Romeo and Juliet-esque, these two sort of warring worlds finding each other. But also it's a very simple story about a father and a daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Really, that's what it is. And letting go. And le you know, and learning to understand that maybe how the trajectory you see for your child isn't what it's going to be. Yeah. And so, and, and that, you know, and that's, it's simple. So I think the greatest stories in the world are the simplest stories, but they're set, uh, you know, against this sort of epic backdrop. And, um, and what they go through to get, you know, finally get there is pretty dramatic. For me, this was almost the purest baton pass from Howard to Rob in that, Howard, well, we broke part of your world. Ariel's a teenage girl. She's a normal teenage girl. It's all coming from a sense of reality in this world that is beyond our own. And Rob has exactly the same sensibility. It's uh, so it's it was it's a great combination. Oh, I mean, Alan says it so beautifully because you know it's about you have to create a reality. I don't care if you're underwater and there there are talking fish or crabs or whatever. You know what I mean. You have to create a sense of truth and reality, otherwise the audience isn't invested. How else are you gonna be invested if you believe these people in that world, you can't comment on it? It's very tricky. I think people don't realize how difficult musicals are to make work, because you're right on that border of when they start to sing. Is it gonna be organic and feel earned, or is it gonna feel somewhat slightly embarrassing, because they, yes. you know what I mean? So, you know, it's, you're always treading that line. Yeah, the, the filter is enormously important in, in writing a musical. It's going, no, I call it the eye test. Yeah. Is this better? Is this better? Is this better? <laughs> but truly, truly. It's true. Just don't ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever fall in love with your own work. You know, and let other people fall in love with it, but just always be ready to throw it out. That's why you're who you are, Alan, because you believe that fully and you, you and you do it. People talk about it, but you actually do One thing I have to mention that we haven't mentioned, because one of the enormous emotional tent poles of this is Triton and, and Javier. And we actually had a song, yes. which was, and it was amazing working with Javier. He sang the song called Impossible Child. Beautifully. In the scene where he's going, where is she? And it was a beautiful song. It, as happens in every single musical and I've ever written, often you have to lose your babies because it's 
takes up too much space or it's it just you whatever it may be but it's he was also wonderful to wonderful work as a singer wonderful and you know the thing is we are creating a new piece in a way mm. because it's a different genre once again and so and you, you know that's your out of town you know <laughs> that's right when you're editing and you're looking at it and you're trying it and you're putting it in front of an audience you see and it tells you and you see what what characters need to sing what characters don't need to sing a lot of people don't know that it, a lot of it's what not to do not what to do yeah exactly you know? all of that I mean, over and over, we I remember in Little Shop, we had a big ballad in that too called We'll Have Tomorrow, where Seymour says, Go home, Audrey, out. You know, we'll be fine tomorrow. And Howard said, Take it out. We don't need it. Yeah. You have to be ruthless with your own work. You have to be. You have to be. Yeah. So, Ellen, you've now seen The Little Mermaid become an animated film, translated into a stage musical then done as a live TV presentation, and now this grand new version. What's your feeling about its place in popular culture? It's the, I think of, I, I, don't, I hate to use the word naivete, but in a way, the naivete of what we did with the original Little Mermaid is so disarming. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Also, it was Howard Ashman at his... Um, he, I'm trying to remember if he knew he was sick the entire time we were working on it. I don't... There's a, an emotional story behind the story that is a gestalt that just feeds it in a way that is absolutely, you know, timeless and magical. So I think that's part of it. I consider myself, the, the analog for what I do as a composer, a musical theater composer, is I, I'm an architect. I design a house that others are gonna live in. So the whole point is you design a structure and then you know, okay, we're gonna build that house for this person or for that person, or someone's gonna move in and maybe add another room or maybe some, whatever it is, that's a design. And now you pass it over to other people to, to realize it. And so in every case, I just want, they're also my, my children, my children are having their lives. They, they moved out of the house and they're out in the world. Yeah. yeah. And you guys have done a hell of a job here oh, John, with The Little you. Mermaid. So thank you both for being with us today, Rob Marshall and Alan Menken. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Good to see you. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer and songwriter featured in the podcast series, including songs by Alan Menken and Lin-Manuel Miranda from Disney's The Little Mermaid, directed by Rob Marshall. Check out The Little Mermaid in theaters and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed.